What's up, Disciple Makers? This is your host, Dave Stovall, and you're listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. We've been working through each track session from our forum last year, and up next is TCM International Institute featuring Jordan Sheets. TCM exists to develop Christian leaders for significant service through higher learning so that every single nation will have effective leaders of disciple-making movements impacting their churches, cultures, and countries for Christ. So make sure to check out tcmi.org when you're done listening to this episode. All right, everybody, let's jump in and hear from Jordan Sheets. Enjoy. Well, it is uh, late morning or early afternoon or whatever we're going to call it. Uh, my name is Mike Eagle. I uh, am an elder at a local church, Harvard Christian Church, part of discipleship.org, and I'm also a student at uh, TCM International. And so I am here to introduce to you our speaker, Jordan Sheets, today. Uh, as I introduced him uh, in the last session, I've kind of come up with the top five reasons why I love this guy. I've uh, gotten to know him really well in the last uh, couple days here. And so number one, first and foremost, I'm going to tell you that he is a disciple of King Jesus, who loves the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I think you'll see that in him today. Uh, number two would be that he is a, a devoted uh, man of God, a husband uh, to his wife Rachel of 25 years. Uh, they have five children, uh, one of them which is in heaven. Uh, number three, he is a foremost theologian. He is a professor of uh, biblical studies, uh, specializing in the Old Testament and, and really the entire Bible, for that matter. He has been um, at Tyndale Theological Seminary in the Netherlands. He has uh, taught as a professor in Austria, as well as uh, Portland, Oregon. He has been an adjunct professor for TCM for 20 years. Uh, He's been full-time with TCM for the last couple of years. Uh, Not only that, I will tell you that he is an expert in many languages. So uh, today I think he's going to be speaking in English, but he also knows German, uh, Dutch, uh, let's see, uh, um, modern-day Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, Greek, and I'm probably forgetting a couple of others. So that was number three. Uh, And number uh, four is uh, he has depth of character. So he holds three uh, different black belt degrees in martial arts. Uh, three different types of martial arts. Uh, very fascinating. I call him the most interesting man in the world. Uh, he plays the piano, the trombone, uh, the guitar, and some other musical instrument I can't pronounce. Uh, so four, four is his depth of character. And five, uh, what you're here for today, uh, he's going to be taking you through scripture. Uh, He has a passion uh, for scripture, the the New Testament, the Great Commission. He has meditated on this and studied this his his entire life, and he's going to challenge you. Uh, In fact, I wrote a book on fasting and prayer, and he's rocked my world and challenged me in ways I've never even thought of. So I'm looking forward to hearing him teach, and without further ado, let's give him a warm welcome. It's very nice of Mike to give such a gracious introduction, and it really has been good to 
to spend time. There's several people who have who've been in here multiple times uh, for the last three sessions, and we're really going to be wrapping things up. And it's just been a pleasure to be with folks here. And also for those, uh, some of us were at the Renew Conference before this as well, and what a good time to be able to gather together with other people and to think big things in relation to God, to be able to soak in His Word, to be challenged in various ways, to develop relationships with one another. And I hope that that's been your same experience as well. Uh, this morning, um, as, as we wrap things up, we're really going to be kind of bringing together the last three sessions and then thinking in relation to historical issues, but then on a broader scale to be thinking about practically, uh, hopefully as we get toward the end of, of some ways that we can bring this in the context of, of our own congregations and our own lives, and to, to be thinking about the praxis of it, not just throughout the centuries, but in, uh, in the present. What you have uh, in front of you is just kind of my full-blown document uh, in relation to prayer and fasting, in particular in the Gospel of Matthew. But the footnotes are absolutely laced uh, with material from other places. And sometime in the future, uh, that material will be in English as well, too. So I'm sorry on this side, because uh, when you're developing something, you kind of put building blocks together one after another. You kind of have to work in phases, and this last phase, sadly, is the one that still is in the process of being translated. <laughs> so so uh, that's, that's where we're going today, is, is primarily we're going to be thinking about the footnotes in this project, but we're going to be thinking then in practical terms. So as we've been working uh, really in this, this, this track of, of following Jesus in prayer and fasting, we are taking this all from the, the ending of the Gospel of Matthew. And in particular, the Gospel of Matthew is pointing toward this, this end of the book and these key words. And these key words are, are really my life verses. Uh, it wasn't necessarily that I, I set out for it to be like this, but uh, in 25 years of service of the Lord, the Lord is, has led Rachel and I and our kids to really sell our possessions or give them away and basically go with a couple of boxes to other places in the world to start all over. And we've started all over about five times now. And, uh, you know, as the Lord gives us more years, it will probably be more. Who knows uh, what, what tomorrow holds, but we want to be faithful. And it really flows out of these final verses. And just as we, as a way of kind of putting things or framing things, prayer and fasting throughout the centuries, it's thinking about these words and this focus. At the end of Matthew, we have the 11 disciples. They show up. Uh, they, they are meeting Jesus in Galilee, just as he had told them before he was crucified. He told them that they were going to meet up again. So the disciples go and meet. There's only 11 because one of them betrayed Jesus and was so overwhelmed with his guilt. He, he took his own life. And the disciples come and they have this mixed response. And in Greek, there, there is no term that uses some doubted and they worshiped. It's they worshiped and they doubted at the same time. And you, we understand that the doubt comes from this reality that the one that they've been following over the course of these last about three years was falsely accused, he was brutally tortured, and he was nailed to a piece of wood, and he died 
was put in a grave. And even with the word that he had risen again, there's a bit of doubt within them. And as they think, uh, probably there's a sense of, you know, what, what do we have to look forward to in the future? And Jesus actually speaks to that doubt. And we should understand that though he speaks to that doubt, many of these men would actually lose their lives as a witness to Jesus. One of them among this group, the first of them, James, the brother of John, uh, who was definitely not James, he was Jacob or Yaakov. Um, he uh, was the first and you know, kind of as the Lord would have it, his brother would be the last one alive of this entire group who was still in his, 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 uh, his old age was a witness to what had happened with Jesus the Messiah. And Jesus comes in and he speaks directly to this doubt. And, you know, I, I kind of preface it with saying they did worship, but when they worshiped, they didn't break out into a round of holy, 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 hands lifted high and, you know, kind of like they were a men's choir. Instead, when it says that they worshiped, they, they fell down before Jesus. Uh, that's the term that's used there, that they prostrated themselves before Jesus. And he looks at them and he speaks to them and he, he says seemingly to this doubt, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he's reassuring them. He's reassuring them that about what he's going to say now, that it has meaning. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, there's, there's no reason to doubt. Whatever might have come before, whatever fears they're facing, Jesus comes to them as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He then goes and he gives this, this what we normally call the great commandment. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And that key, the key word in this following section is, is to make disciples. This is the finite verb on which everything else is built. This is the, the finite verb that the three participles, going, baptizing, and teaching, are all subordinate to in this section. So what does it mean to make disciples? Part of making disciples is you have to go. It's just that simple. If you want to reach new people, you have to go. You can't just sit and kind of wait for them to come to you. One of the most basic aspects of missions is going. And it is painful. I will say that. It is painful to leave family, friends, uh, your life, possessions, all, all of those sorts of things. It is painful to go and do that. But we do it because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is the one who has called us to do it. So a part of making disciples is going. Sometimes the going is not as painful. It's, it's going over and speaking to someone. Sometimes it's, it's somewhere in your local area. Sometimes it's to the ends of the earth. But going is a key aspect of it. The next aspect of this as we think about where the whole of this gospel is pushing is, right, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say just make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the key in understanding baptism, and this is not put in your own definition of baptism, Matthew has talked about baptism since the beginning of the book, and this is the baptism initially. It comes through John the Baptist, and he's speaking, and it is a call to repent. 
And this comes out of the concept in the Old Testament of, of, of the Hebrew term is shuv, return. It's equivalent to the New Testament term metano eo, uh, which is speaking about this change of mind, but primarily it's a call to turn away from all of these other things and to turn to, to return to our Creator. And in the midst of this, you know, thinking about turning away from sin, well, sin is living in a way contrary to how we have been created. And so the call is ultimately by the Creator to return to Him and to live in accordance with how He has created us, and He's created us to be in relationship with Him. So to baptize. Third part of making disciples, then, is this, this issue of, and teach them to be obedient to as much as I have commanded you. He doesn't say top five, top three, you know, whatever the number might be. It's a call to a complete obedience. And in the midst of this call to complete obedience, it's not just to know the information. It's to put that information into action. And Jesus has already spoken and said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. All of these things come. It's, it's not come to Jesus and everything is cheery. Instead, we've got the rain coming down. We've got the wind beating against the house. We've got the rivers pushing against the house. But because it's built upon the rock, those who hear and put into action, those who do, their house remains. Those who hear these words of mine and do not do them are like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Same things come in the description, and yet there, that house is not just a fall, but it's a great fall. And so there's this call to complete obedience to as much as Jesus is commanded. And so that would mean, as being Jesus' disciples, that we really, really, really should be paying attention to what Jesus did and what he said. And so as we follow through the Gospel of Matthew, we see, and we're highlighting in this, that there's two issues. And he doesn't say if, he says when, when you pray, when you fast. And there is a third one given in that sequence. It's actually the first of them, when you give alms. That is, when you give charitable giving in this series of things. And he expected his disciples, we could probably put it in the present, he expects his disciples to set aside a portion of their money for the purpose of helping those who are in need. This is not to be confused with money that would be given uh, to, uh, to support a local church. This is actually money that you would set aside for the purpose of helping those who are in need. So when, 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 as we've gone through the whole book in the last three sessions in relation to these things, we saw that the first issue or the first thing that came up was that of fasting. We saw that Jesus in his temptation uh, account that it actually, it's 40 days and 40 nights that he is fasting. When we think about uh, his fasting, this is different or distinct in this 40-day fast than some of the things that we see roaming around the world right now. Muslims would primarily be the ones in the month of Ramadan that would be think, thought of in relation to fasting. What Jesus did here is different than what happens in the month of Ramadan because from sun up to sundown you fast and then you feast at night. So actually in the month of Ramadan, in Muslim context, more food is consumed than other months in the year 
because it's this fasting during the day and feasting at night. Jesus instead, in his fasting, it was a complete fast. And what we saw was at the point of 40 days, we know physically you're at the point when your body tells you it's time to eat again. This is not the hunger pains of I haven't had anything since yesterday. This is I'm going to die. Your body is actually telling you that you're going to die if you don't eat something. And so Jesus in this moment, he demonstrated that in this period of time, he uh, has been meditating in relation to his heavenly, his father's commands, his words. And he answers the temptations three times, seemingly what we would have thought in a moment of weakness. And Jesus demonstrates that this is actually not a moment of weakness, but he has been preparing in this period of time through meditation, through communing with his heavenly father to be able to demonstrate that he is actually God's son through the dependence on God's word. And so when we think about this issue of fasting and Jesus' example in this moment, as we follow through the centuries, we see that this, this meditating and fasting, meditating on Scripture, praying Scripture even, that these come from the earliest times forward. When we look at aesthetic practices, monks, as they are fasting, that they are meditating on Scripture. So we have, um, uh, oh, I can't even think of his, uh, Athanasius, uh, as a prime example of somebody who's, who's participating in this sort of practice where it is going without food and meditating on Scripture. And in particular, one of those places that the church has tradi traditionally turned has been the book of Psalms as a place to live from. And we know that Jesus meditated on these because when he sits on the cross and things are unfolding, it's Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. So that's Aramaic. If it was Hebrew, it'd be Eli, Eli, Lama, Azavtani. And that last word tells us he's, he's speaking this in the normal language of the folks around him, the language that would have been spoken up in Galilee. And he's demonstrating that in this moment, he is submitting to the will of the Father. He is living out Scripture in this particular uh, context. But the, many of the aesthetic monks... Uh, they have uh, used this practice. And this is something that you uh, can do as well. All sorts of things in relation to Scripture. And I, I just want to kind of pull it into the, the modern era just for a moment on this one. But when it comes to meditating on Scripture and taking time, setting it aside, uh, we oftentimes don't have very big thoughts into what that would look like. One of my friends, uh, another Old Testament scholar who's at a uh, prestigious university here in the U.S., his, his wife is from uh, South Korea, and his in-laws came, and he is an expert in Old Testament, in particular the book of Isaiah. His in-laws came and they visited, and on vacation, on vacation, his father-in-law from South Korea during the two weeks while he was there as a way of meditating on scripture and, and being communing with the Lord during this time. It was a time of both fasting and meditation. He copied out in a two-week period the entire New Testament by hand. 
as a way of meditating on God's Word. Now, if you don't know this, South Koreans, they're pretty serious when it comes to their walk with the Lord. They are the powerhouse as far as world missions right now um, and have been for several years. Uh, part of that practice, of course, is, you know, I guess if you gather with other people at four o'clock in the morning, gathered prayer, uh, that there might be an impact as well, too. But thinking of putting those sort of things together. Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers. And by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. Thinking about uh, the second passage we looked at, just kind of, um, we're, we're kind of skimming through Matthew 5, 43 to 48, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When we think about this, and uh, first and foremost, of course, the Lord gives us this sort of example of praying for those who persecute us. Uh, when we look in, in, a, uh, in the gospel of Luke in particular, Luke 23, 34, we find that Jesus in this situation, enduring torture, that he, he really speaks out and he says, and this is a form of prayer, Father, forgive them. So that's an example from Jesus's life, but already in the early context, and this is a key, these are key statements uh, even in, in the martyr literature that we see at an early time period, already in the New Testament itself, that we have Stephen, who's full of the Spirit. And as Stephen, I mean, nobody can hold this guy down. Uh, the, the, there was the task that was given to choose out, and evidently he is uh, one of these um, you know, Hellenistic Jews, that is to say, a Greek-speaking Jew who's the work among the Greek-speaking among the Hellenists. So the Greek-speaking Jews, he goes in, and this guy is, you cannot put him down. He's preaching all over the place. Not only is he waiting on tables, but he's out, he's sharing the gospel, and they, they just can't take it anymore. And he's given this opportunity. He speaks before this gathered group of haters and man, he lays down the hammer and he gets to the end of kind of sharing this salvation story. Uh, we'd call it Heilsgeschichte, this, this story of God's salvation throughout the whole of the Old Testament that's mixed with, mixed with the story of the hard-heartedness among God's people. And he puts them side by side and he weaves the whole story together. And then he gets to the end of it and he's like, and you guys are a part of this hard-hearted generation. And they respond by saying, not, oh yes, we believe now, thank you very much. They respond by picking up stones 
and starting to hit him as he's in the process of being struck with these stones. And think the writer of this is Luke. Luke is a traveling companion of Paul. Hey, let me interrupt for just a second so that you can hear a brief message from our sponsors. Here they are. Wouldn't it be great if someone who knew what they were doing, who actually had proven results, would just share with you exactly how to make disciples? Hi, I'm Doug Burrier, a decision scientist and a real-life disciple maker. This year, I'm discipling six of my neighbors. That's crazy. They don't even go to our church. My friends and I made 1,392 disciples last year. So if you're tired of hearing the same old blog and keynote messages, droning on about the why, the need, and the theory, I want to invite you to hear the simple how-tos that have bunches of churches and hundreds of people making thousands of disciples all around the world, how to recruit, how to get them to love reading the Bible, how to transform them, how to run a meeting, like a real proven agenda, how to make individual disciples in a group setting, how to give people the wonderful, abundant life that God promised them. This is what I found in sustainable discipleship. It's not materials. It's not another program. It's a simple, repeatable set of how-tos. If you're ready for something proven, practical, and different, visit sustainable-discipleship.com. That's sustainable-discipleship.com. The team will be happy to share with you everything God shared with them. All right, let's get back to the episode. Paul is actually here in this moment. I mean, you have to take this in. Paul is actually present in this moment with Stephen being killed. He's witnessed the preaching of this thing. And Stephen in this moment is praying to the Lord as he's being struck by these stones that the Lord would not hold this sin against them. When we think about fasting, we can look, this is uh, now footnote 10. So the didache is one of these uh, witnesses and we're not, it's, it's one of these things. It is radically different in its dating. So it could be anywhere from about the 50s AD. Some people will date it very, very early, all the way into the third century. So coming up to about 300. Uh, one of my professors at the University of Vienna who had written significantly, you know, he's, well, Jordan, I just want you to know, I think this is really, uh, really late. And that's fine. It doesn't matter. It's a collection of teaching. Uh, from Jesus, kind of a collation of key items that you would use in training people, and also early Christian practice of the sort of things that were happening in this time period. So the Didache, a summary of Jesus' teaching and early church practices attributed to the 12 apostles, dated anywhere from uh, the first to third century AD, if you want to go and track it down, combines blessing, prayer, and fasting on behalf of our enemies based primarily on this passage. And so you have it, and, and, you know, and these are the teachings. Um, bless the ones cursing you and pray in behalf of your enemies and it, it even at this point, it puts two concepts together. And I'm sorry, I wish I would have translated this for you. Um, but it says then to fast in behalf of the ones persecuting you. And so it's actually combining two different practices together with one another that we, in our practice of prayer and fasting, putting them together, even in behalf of those who are actively persecuting us. That we would actually, that we would go without food, that we would prayerfully bring our enemies as a sign of love for them, 
that we um, would combine these things uh, together on their behalf. And he, it's, it's very clear that it's a quotation from here in Matthew. And we also have another statement in relation to uh, this, this passage in 543 and following. This is from Polycarp, who is a bishop in Smyrna and died a martyr's death. And you just have to take that in. Somewhere, we think somewhere around 155 to 160, Eusebius, who's an early church historian, has it kind of around 167. Most scholars would, would say it was earlier than that. And his letter to the Philippians repeated Jesus' teaching about praying for those who persecute us. It's a Latin quote there, but it just clearly says, you know, praying for, um, praying for those who are persecuting as well as the enemies of the cross. And just to allow that to sink in, it is something that he is teaching, but he will ultimately lose his life as a martyr. And evidently, the, the recording goes uh, in relation to the, the, um, the martyrdom of Polycarp that he, in the moment, he, he clearly looks, and we'll get to this maybe a little bit later, but he has an opportunity to escape because he knows that they're coming and that they plan to take his life. And he looks and he quotes from the Lord's prayer. And he said, let the Lord's will be done. He's taken in, they you know, do everything that they can to try and get him to recant. And then as he's preparing for this moment, he prays. And he prays for a couple of hours and as a part of this, he's remembering all of these different people, and he is actually, he's living out the Lord's teaching, even in the context of his life being taken. So anyway, we've, we've got, uh, you know, Matthew 5, 43 to 48 being a significant passage. This is one of these things that is used uh, around the world to this present day as a way of of following Jesus in the context of persecution. And we live in a context where, yeah, people say weird stuff to us at times and they might get upset and all of these sorts of things. It's a very different thing to be taken out and tortured because of your faith in Jesus. God's given me the privilege to work with people from a lot of different countries. I've spent anywhere from one to three I guess in one case, four years uh, with students, um, 30 plus nations. Uh, many of these students from the top 10 persecuted countries in the world. And thinking about their witness and their testimony and their love, even for those who hate and persecute them. Thinking of one of my students who's from Ethiopia and he's uh, a, a, an evangelist. And his goal was to go and, and to bring, is, not was, is, to bring the good news uh, to the Muslim portion of Ethiopia. And as he's traveling over the years, uh, he has found himself in really rough circumstances. And when I say rough circumstances, his body literally has the scars of being tortured. His prayer is that these people who are persecuting him 
these people who have tortured him, that they in turn would turn to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and that God would deliver them. That is how you reach people with the good news of Jesus. Uh, in my own much less circumstances, uh, for a portion of time working in Austria, I led uh, a youth outreach to Muslim teenagers uh, the primary groups that they were from at that period of time, it was the early 2000s, were Afghanistan and Chechnya. At that period of time in Afghanistan, the United States was putting a full-out assault, and I would be sharing the gospel with kids who would tell me through an interpreter. I'd normally be speaking German, and so we'd be going back and forth. They didn't know where I was from, in other words. And they would tell me, yeah, I'm here, I'm by myself. My whole family was killed when a bomb from the U.S. blew up my house as well as my entire family. Might have had a reason to hate me. And yet at the same time in that context, having people, the first time I heard this, it just made, it was, it, I did not feel good. But because I was sharing the gospel among Muslims, the first time I heard the phrase, and it wasn't the last time, because I'm sharing the gospel, I'm going to drink your blood. And the resoluteness needs to be, no, we pray on behalf of those who would persecute us. We pray on, on behalf of those who hate us for the purpose of seeing them turn to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And just so you know, it was an unprecedented period of time. We were seeing people come to faith in Jesus on a regular basis. And just as, a, as another note, the turmoil going in relation to the Middle East, in many ways, it's opened the possibility for people who otherwise would not have heard the gospel to hear the gospel. So, uh, thinking um, uh, just in those sort of terms, but praying uh, in behalf of um, those who hate us as a primary way of demonstrating uh, our love for them. So, following Jesus in that sort of way. Uh, when we think about the issues of almsgiving, uh, prayer, and fasting, it's very, very interesting that in Acts chapter 10, we have Cornelius show up. And so this is a very early example. And Cornelius is this, you know, kind of um, pious, you know, a God-fearing person. And in particular, two things are connected together in Acts 10.4. And that is that your prayers and your almsgiving, they have gone up for remembrance before God. And these two things, it's just, it's very interesting that it was something that somehow it, God responded in that context to Cornelius, opens this door. And of course, we know the story of, of, of what happened there. Uh, when we think about uh, other issues, the didache in, in this whole sweep of Matthew uh, 6, 1 uh, through 18 of almsgiving, uh, prayer and fasting. Uh, this is now moving in relation to uh, uh, starting with footnote 23. We, we start to see instructions that come from a very early time period of how this was practiced in the early church, and it's, it's gone up through our present era. So the Didache instructs us to pray the Lord's Prayer based on Matthew 6, 
And we know this because the text in the Gospel of Luke is shorter uh, than what we have in the Gospel of Matthew in the Didache. It has uh, exactly what we have in Matthew, but it does even add one line to it. Um, and it has this phrase, because yours is the power and the glory forever. And possibly this is, for those of you who know the Lord's Prayer that ends in that way, it might very well be that in the Didache, it kind of puts that final statement and then it ends up back in the manuscript traditions because of that. But as we think about this, we start to see that from an early time period, and this is true up to the present day, possibly with the exception of our North American evangelical churches. And that is that the Lord's Prayer has been a normal part of everyday life for Christians for almost 2,000 years. Um, this is instructing, pray it three times a day. And it should be said, just as, as we think about this, what, what happens in praying the Lord's Prayer in the, as, as we look into our daily life, we start to see the whole of our life through the lens of the Lord's Prayer. We start to think about how the Lord's name is going to be sanctified and hallowed in the midst of everyday life. We start to think about the Lord's kingdom coming here in the present, that the Lord's will would be done here in the present. We put our lives in subjection to that. We join in almost 2,000 years of Christians who have been practicing this on a regular basis. And it's not starting with the primary concern of what is my world about? What are the things that I want to do? But instead putting ourselves in subjection to God and his kingdom and what it is that he desires. And so we see this practice come in and we could follow this through any of the Orthodox traditions, which by the way, were Christianity until the, the Reformation. So in the 1500s. The overwhelming majority of Christianity for those first almost 1,500 years, all of these traditions, even to this day, use the Lord's Prayer as a way of teaching people how to pray, but also what you pray in the course of your daily life. If you want a recommendation of where to start with prayer in the context of your discipleship relationships or in the context of your church, start with memorizing the Lord's Prayer teaching on the significance of the Lord's Prayer and bringing it into regular practice within the context of the church. So thinking about this, adding, uh, of course, this one final line, because yours is the power and the glory. Uh, we also see that there's a connection uh, in the early church. Um, this, again, in the Didache, connects fasting and baptism commanding the baptizer and the baptized to fast one or uh, one to two days beforehand while encouraging others to fast as well. And it's, it's a little bit, you know, when, when you read the actual text itself, it's a little, you're not exactly sure, uh, you know, who, exactly how things were supposed to unfold. And yet at the same time, we do see that this is a way of preparation, this is a way of thinking and focusing and focusing in relation to God and his word, taking this period of time. And you're doing it for a couple of days beforehand, uh, before somebody would make this significant decision, as well as the person who's baptizing them. And it could possibly be that also there's a whole portion of the body 
fasting in this particular time in preparation for the baptism that's about to unfold. So, uh, just as a challenge, uh, when was the last time you fasted before you were, you were going to baptize somebody? Um, thinking about the significance of this moment, thinking about focusing, maybe, just maybe, this is an extra biblical sort of thing, but maybe this would help people to think about the significance of what it is that they're doing as they take time away from food, as they meditate on God's Word, as they spend ex extended times in prayer, uh, that then as they go and they, they go into the, into the water, identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, that there would be, at least in their mind, a greater level of significance. Also, regular fasting was encouraged to be on Wednesday and Friday, avoiding Monday and Thursday, the regular days of tra traditional Jewish fasting. So when we think about this, he uses the term hypocrite in here. And the term hypocrite uh, would also be used as, for an actor. Uh, we've just kind of brought it over. We've transliterated it and brought it straight into English. But this is the normal word used for somebody who's acting. And so the point of, of calling somebody an actor is they are not actually that. They are putting on a front in front of other people. So he uses this term. And if we would look in any of these passages, especially in chapter 6, uh, we see he's, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. And so the didache was saying, well, we need a distinction from the practices that have come beforehand. It might be that it's in conjunction with Matthew chapter 9, talking about, you know, new wine and new wineskins, and that sort of statement that now there's something new, so we shift the days. Within uh, uh, traditional Judaism at this particular time period, if we can speak of that, we now know that there are many forms of Judaism that were flowing around in this time period. Absolutely, fasting was a normal part of practice, but it was a practice in relation to mourning. It was a practice in relation to repentance. Jesus is teaching a form of fasting that is different. He is making a clean break from the things of the past. It's not an outward show. It's not a sign of mourning. Instead, it's now a sign in relation uh, to devotion to the Lord and, and medita meditating on his word and being uniquely devoted to him. And so with that, there, there is this argument of a shift in days, Wednesday and Friday. So when we look through church history, we do see that Friday is a traditional day in many circles on which you would fast from certain things. Uh, certain types of meats won't be eaten on that particular day. But in this early time period, it was a fasting from all food. Uh, John Wesley comes uh, 15, 15, well, depending on the date of this document, we'll say 15 to 1700 years later, and he comes in and he puts in, we're going to fast on Wednesday and we're going to fast on Friday. He makes the argument that he is not going to ordain anyone who will not actually participate in regular fasting because he thinks that it demonstrates something of, of a devotion to the Lord that is needed among those who are going to be on this sort of ministry. 
So for him, it would be from three o'clock the day before till three o'clock on the day of that you would fast. We do know that there was a transition somewhere as, as Wesley became older, that he went from two days a week to Friday was the primary day that he fasted. And who knows, maybe his, he noticed his body was getting weaker. But Wesley, he, he argues that he lived to such an old age because of the practice of fasting. Do whatever you want with that. The guy was hardcore in relation to sharing the gospel uh, among thousands upon thousands of people and calling people to turn to Jesus. So we see this practice coming up through the church. Uh, in some Orthodox traditions, still Friday is that primary place. In most evangelical traditions, there is no form of fasting regularly anywhere. And we just have to let that sink in. What happened? When? When you fast? What, what happened? So thinking about this and bringing it in, basing it on Jesus' teaching to then allow that to be something that is a part of our regular rhythm. Uh, under the influence of reading about John Wesley, it's something that I brought into my own life. And in particular, the thing that I'm always meditating on when those hunger pains come is to pray through the Great Commission. And that, the, that finally, finally, that we would bring this to fulfillment, that the gospel would go into all nations and that we would make disciples of all nations. D does it do anything magical? I don't think so, but I can tell you for me that this has been the focus of 25 years of ministry and that it's caused us to move thousands of miles multiple times just because of that focus. And to start having those sort of passages that go through our minds that in conjunction with our fasting on whatever day it might be and don't let anybody know. <laughs> But start having these passages that you're meditating on and thinking in relation to. When we go a little bit further here, and I've got to watch the time, uh, I think we, we might go here. As was seen, this is, um, I want to look at uh, footnote 25. As was seen with Matthew 6, 5 to 15, the parallel passage in the Synoptic Gospels is Luke 11, 1 to 13. And I would say, look at that whole passage together. And based on the request from one of the disciples to teach them how to play, pray, uh, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus gives a shorter version of the Lord's Prayer in comparison to Matthew in Luke 11, 2-4. And so that's the parallel passage. This model of prayer is followed by a story that encourages shameless, persistent prayer. And it, it really, the, the, the phrase that's used there is shamelessness. Because of his shamelessness, that is, you know, as he shares this story, he's like, hey, if he's not going to give him, you know, the bread that he's asking for because he's his neighbor and he's knocking on the door, he's going to do it because of his neighbor's shamelessness to ask for it over and over and over and not to take no for an answer. And he's saying that this is how God's people should be. And so, um, moving a little bit further here, trusting that God answers persistent prayer, even with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when we look at the parallel passage between 7, uh, verse 11, and then uh, at the end there, 
this must be uh, in the, what's the last verse in the Luke section. What we see is that instead of good things in Matthew, it says the Holy Spirit, that he will give the Holy Spirit. Who's the writer of the book of Luke? Luke. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. And so as we look through here, this final point in relation to the Holy Spirit is at work throughout the book of Acts, even if not explicitly stated. So the people were gathering together on Pentecost. What we see already in chapter 1 is as the people gathered together, what were they doing? They were praying together with one another. What's the practice that they see consistently moving from this point forward in this early period of time? Acts 2.42, right? They're, they're staying to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and prayer. And it actually, it says the prayers, and you want to hear, and I, I have a feeling the Lord's Prayer may be one of those in a particular sort of way. But then the Spirit comes down in that moment where they were gathered together on that particular day. 6-6, six, six, we see that um, uh, they're standing before the apostles and they're praying for them. They put their hands on them the, to uniquely commission uh, this group of deacons, which just means servants, 8.15 as the gospel is going to the Samaritans and they are praying on their behalf and lo and behold, what happens? The Spirit of God falls on them, 10.20 or 10.44 as uh, Cornelius is commended as this person who's praying. It's, a, it's in the context of a prayerful group of people. Peter comes and preaches among them. As he's speaking the word to them, the Spirit falls on them. Uh, and 13.13, 13, Paul and Barnabas, or we should put it in the order of the text because Barnabas was the senior member. Uh, Barnabas and Paul are set aside uniquely for the work of the ministry. And lo and behold, what do we see happening there? It's prayer and fasting together that are a part of this process. So uh, some things just to uh, quickly, and then I'm going to turn it over. So I'm just going to take a couple more minutes and I'm going to have David and Mike come up and speak. We see moving from an early time period after Jesus' teaching that the apostles begin to put these things into action. The book of Acts demonstrates that. Early church history demonstrates in a focused sort of way that the early church was actually doing what Jesus taught in relation to prayer and fasting. It's clearly, it's, we, we see it in Orthodox traditions. It continues to be there. The call would be to bring among it uh, uh, our traditions as well, not because it's practiced in the Orthodox traditions, but because it's based on Jesus' teaching. To then actually bring it into the context of not only what we are doing personally, but even what we are practicing in the context of our churches. For those of you who are in charge of what happens in the service, I would recommend that you begin setting aside time for prayer among the congregation. Not just you know, one person who stands up and does it, but that you actually open it up to the breadth of prayer represented in the body. Now, for me, I've been involved in a brethren tradition uh, for many, many years, and I have been in all spectrums. The brethren are extremely conservative, in some circles where the men are the only one who participate, 
but they do stand up and pray and open up God's word as a part of a normal worship service. You don't even know who's going to stand up, and sadly, you don't know what they're going to say either. Also in this tradition, I have been on the, the other side of the spectrum where it's everybody who's standing up and participating in the story or in the, in the service. And I would say one thing, it is beautiful to have God's people come together and to pray and bring things before the Lord. Make an effort to do this, however it might work itself out in the context of your congregation. In the context of discipleship relationships, training people to fast and to pray. The person, uh, one of the key people who discipled me when I was 16 years old, I had a question within just a short period of time of coming to faith in Jesus. I wasn't sure what I needed to do. We sat down at his house and the first time I'd ever really prayed with somebody was a 45 minute on our knees in front of the couch praying together. And that has marked my life from that point forward. So thinking about bringing that into discipleship relationships, not just leaving it for the Orthodox traditions, but instead going as good uh, Reformation era sorts of folks, but going back to Adventus, to the sources. And in our case, the source is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to listen to his words and to do them. Hey, I want to interrupt this episode real quick because I want to give a shout out to four of our key partners who will be leading track sessions at the National Disciple Making Forum coming up in Nashville, October 5th and 6th. Check out Awana for information on family discipleship at awana.org. Take a look at Mercy Multiplied for discipling men and women who are hurting and struggling. Their website is mercymultiplied.com. Do you find yourself wanting to help in transitioning your church to a disciple-making focus? Then go to navigatorschurchministries.com for more resources. And lastly, should you need help with sustainable discipleship models, head on over to sustainablediscipleship.com. I encourage you to join one of the track sessions that these organizations will lead at our forum. We want to thank Awana, Mercy Multiplied, Navigators Church Ministries, and Sustainable Discipleship for their support. All right, let's get back to the episode. Thank you, Jordan. Um, one verse that came to my mind as you were speaking was that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And... Um, to hear about the history of prayer and fasting uh, is, uh, it, it, you know, just to see how it has evolved over the centuries and kind of thinking about where we are today, uh, something that um, has touched my heart in terms of this concept is uh, this, this, this book. You should all have a copy of this book on prayer and fasting. It's a book that uh, David Roadcup and uh, myself, we co-authored this book. I mentioned I'm a, a student at TCM. I'm about to finish my master's, God willing, uh, in <laughs> December. And uh, one thing, four years ago, uh, I was in his discipleship class, and uh, we were tasked to write on something that interested us in terms of spiritual disciplines, Robert, or uh, Richard Foster's book. Um, 
and I chose fasting. And the reason why I chose fasting is I honestly didn't know a whole lot about it because when I looked at the church today, I, I didn't see fasting um, as a practice. And my question was why? Why aren't we fasting? Why aren't we linking this with prayer? Um, so as I did the research, as I read through the Old Testament, the New Testament, I, I looked and found 17 different reasons uh, plus some of why uh, people would fast. And it was always intimately linked with prayer. It was never uh, an if question, it was always a when. And they went together in an intimate way. And so uh, something that really has um, spoken to me um, is uh, how Jesus modeled this for us. And uh, he, is the, he is our master, he's our king, he's our lord. And so uh, David and I wrote this book in, in terms of uh, a book that would be practical. Something that, what is the, as you're discipling people, what is something that you can use to disciple people in prayer and fasting? And it comes down, for me, to practicality. Like, what exactly is fasting? How do I do it? How do I begin it? Uh, if I've been doing it, how do I dive deeper into this concept here? And I just want to share uh, an excerpt from the book. And as we think of linking the two together, I'd like to share this quote with you by Don Whitney, which says this. It says, like all spiritual disciplines, fasting hoists the sails of the soul in hopes of experiencing the gracious wind of God's spirit. But fasting also adds a unique dimension to your spiritual life and helps you grow in Christ-likeness in ways that are unavailable through any other means. If this were not so, there would have been no need for Jesus to model and teach fasting. And so my prayer for all of us is that we learn to hoist the uh, in this discipline and uh, gain the Holy Spirit's power to be disciples who make disciples and bring uh, much uh, uh, glory to the name of Jesus Christ. So, David is our expert on prayer. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh, all, let me just say it's wonderful to have you be here with us in this time. Bobby Harrington called about two years ago, actually, and said, we would love to really team up with TCMI International to do a prayer fast movement that we hope would really go around the world. And maybe one of the reasons he called us is that we are now in 55 different countries. Our students are uh, come to Vienna every year, and we go in country as well. And we have representatives there and graduates there. And uh, what we would love to see is the church of Jesus Christ across the board called to a uh, real heart. Um, I believe are the two major engines in the life of the church, power, prayer, power, and I think there are actually two others that would usher in um, uh, revival. If we had uh, our people involved in prayer and fasting, obedience is part of the process, and also humility, those four things. You know, if our church members are lay people, remember if we plan on just the paid ministers of our churches to take their cities for Jesus Christ, it's not going to happen. It's only when we get lay people involved uh, in these things and in the discipling ministries as well. Will we, will we really see opportunities for us to take cities for Jesus Christ, which I think we really can in time. 
So Mike and I got together. Uh, I did the section on uh, on prayer. And in our two groups, what we wanted to do more than anything else was make it as practical, boots on the ground as possible. So in the section on uh, on prayer, there's a whole section on there on, on what are the um, difficulties we have to overcome to have a good prayer life. What, 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 what stops our prayers? What stunts us from having the kind of prayer life we want? Um, I, I, all of my life, all of my ministry life, you know, I've never had one person come to me and say, yeah, you know that prayer thing? Uh, I've got that nailed down. You know? <laughs> uh, I've got that taken care of because I think a couple of things, uh, mainly that anytime the weakest saint bows their knee in prayer, sincere, heartfelt prayer, it stirs the heavenlies. Uh, it makes a difference, really, in the heavenlies when we pray. And Satan, of course, is a dirty street fighter, and he will do everything. So he will throw the kitchen sink at you. I think every single time you, you, you bow your head. So we just want to, to write something and say, you know, there are ways to overcome that, and there are ways to really strengthen your prayer life and to maybe approach having the kind of prayer life that you would like to have. Uh, also, I want to mention that uh, I'm all through the year in all kinds of churches, elder conferences, working with ministers, and a number of uh, close friends of mine have confessed to me that they, they know fasting and they know scripture teaches it, but they actually have never fasted, and the honest truth is that they don't know where to begin to get started. So in, in the chapter on fasting, what we do is we give you a model. It's, it's not the only model, but it's a model. If you've never fasted before, read this and just just step in and start one step at a time, just like we describe in here. And then build on that. Uh, this is a primer. It's just kind of a beginner. Then build on that. And down the road, you know, your prayer and fasting life could be a powerful, powerful tool in terms of your church and in terms of the, the kingdom of God. I want to also mention that um, TCMI, the group that we are all with who are sponsoring this, uh, this, uh, these sessions, uh, we are actually a graduate seminary. Uh, and if you are interested in a really high quality level uh, a graduate study in leadership ministry, that's all we do is ministry in the church, teaching men and women to lead the church uh, with effectiveness. Why, please go to tcmi.org and, uh, and look at the uh, ministry we have there, the program. We are in 55 different countries, as I mentioned, but we also have brought TCM to the United States now. And uh, you can uh, enter into a wonderful graduate level study on how to lead the church with effectiveness. Uh, I just talked to a lady uh, two sessions before, and she said, "You know, I, she said that sounds so so wonderful to me. I don't have a I don't have a college degree." And I said, "Well, one of the aspects we have is called a certificate, and it's actually one half of a master's degree that anyone can sign up for and take." wonderful classes on discipling, life of Christ, Old and New Testament, all kinds of wonderful, wonderful classes. And all that information is there on our TCMI.org website. Last of all, uh, last year we sponsored this event, and uh, it went so well, uh, we really are doing this again. This is called Prayer Fast. And a week from uh, tomorrow, uh, we are inviting people to come online with us, and we're going to have a two-hour session of prayer and fellowship and in intercession on behalf of the church and the Lord and in ministries. Uh, this is not a fundraising event. We're not raising funds to do this. We're just inviting you to, come, to log on and say to us, we want to be part of this. 
uh, we'll put you into a group as well, and uh, you know you'll enjoy the the things that we do together in terms of the devotions, uh, the the prayers we do together, uh, the fasting times, uh, if you would like. And uh, and we're up uh, approaching a thousand people possibly this year who are going to be joining joining us in this. It's just a good motivation, a good point of encouragement to anyone who really wants to use uh, two of the major tools to bring down the kingdom of darkness and to really bless the church and, and to see their own personal lives move forward. So that's Prayer Fast. If you just remember, tcmi.org. TCMI. And our, our booth is just right out the door here on the right. Stop by and pick up a flyer and you can be part of this as well. So everyone, as you leave, you may have already gotten this, but we want you to have this as a gift from TCM, and please pick this up before you leave. And thank you so much for being here today. I hope this has been a blessing. A big thanks to our brother Jordan Sheets also. The excellent job that he did as well. God bless you all, and uh, good Thanks so much for listening. That wraps up TCM's track sessions. So make sure to check out tcmi.org after this episode. Up next, we've got track sessions from Zume Training. So click subscribe so that you know when I release the next episode. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being a Disciple Makers podcast listener. And I hope you have a great day.